Hello, this is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast brought to you by the online Master of Science in Graduate Certificates in Palliative Care from the University of Maryland, Baltimore. I am so excited to introduce today's guest, Dr. Mira Ager. Dr. Ager is, uh, or Professor Ager, is a palliative medicine physician with a particular interest, as you'll see, in the supportive care needs of people suffering from advanced illness on the brain. Dr. Ager leads a clinical research portfolio at University of Technology, Sydney, Australia, including clinical trials and health service evaluation. She led a world-first clinical trial of antipsychotics in delirium, which we'll be discussing today, and is leading a NSW government-funded trial of the use of medicinal cannabis for the terminally ill. A fellow of the Royal Australasian College of Physicians, fellow of the Australasian chapter of palliative medicine and clinical scientists, she holds a master's in palliative care. Her doctorate was awarded in the area of delirium and advanced illness. And she's won numerous, numerous awards and um, honors. So Dr. Ager, thank you so much for joining us today. And as you know, we'll be discussing uh, the paper that you were first author on titled Efficacy of Oral Risperidone Haloperidol or Placebo for Symptoms of Delirium Among Patients in Palliative Care, impressively published in JAMA Internal Medicine. So can you start off by telling us your impetus for doing this study? I think um, really the impetus was that we saw such a need in terms of the clinical care of people with delirium, the distress that delirium symptoms um, causes, but the evidence base to actually inform how we can um, prescribe in clinical practice or how we can make a difference uh, for mm-hmm. um, care for people with delirium in the palliative care setting was um, very scarce and we wanted to really uh, answer a real uh, world question that affects all of our clinical practice on a day-to-day basis. Yes, I think it's a very practical question. It seems to be a, a quite a pervasive and often very frightening symptom. So could you briefly describe for us your, your methods for this study? So we undertook a, a randomised uh, blinded uh, trial um, and really the, the fundamental question was to look at um, antipsychotics in particular um, to agents which are, are able to be given in, in an oral route, uh, risperidone and haloperidol, and we were comparing those both with placebo to look at whether they reduced distressing symptoms of delirium in people receiving palliative care. And really we tried to mirror the approach that's used widely um, in clinical Mm -hmm. uh, practice. And it's very aligned with the the guidelines in delirium care which really suggest that the use of medication uh, should be tailored for symptoms that are causing significant distress. Mm -hmm. Um, Yet the, the trials and research to date hasn't really tackled that question from that perspective. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem to be one size fits all, certainly in managing delirium. We'll certainly agree there. I'm curious what kind of response you have observed from the palliative care and the geriatrics community since this paper was published. I think everybody around me has held their head and said, oh no, what do we do now? What have you experienced? So I think before we started the trial, I think there was true equipoise that there was such a wide variation in clinical practice and views. Um, there were the clinicians who really don't feel that there's any role for these um, group of uh, medications in the management of delirium period. Um, there's a group that were telling us that they use it in very tailored um, situations and a group that had a much broader use um, for a much wider range of symptoms. 
Um, so we really entered the trial with true equipoise that we didn't know which of the the arms would um, be the, the best um, option. I think um, there are people who are now uh, responding to us and saying, well, no, that's very aligned with what our practice was anyway. Um, the trial um, isn't changing what I do to the groups where they either had a targeted approach uh, to the use of these medications or those who had a much broader ap approach who are finding that they have to think about how these results inform their practice. Mm -hmm. But I think the most critical thing to us is that this is bringing discussion about delirium care research um, into trying to improve delirium care for people in palliative care to the forefront and I hope that this is not the end of the discussion. I hope this is the beginning of a rapid escalation in the research to help us tackle what's a really complex That problem. would be wonderful, certainly. I um, share your opinion from what I'm hearing here that it's not an all or none sort of thing. It's not black or white. I, I despair when I see nursing homes in the U.S. often put up a sign saying, we're an antipsychotic-free facility, and I just don't think you can take a big old paintbrush and paint the whole scenario with that. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think with any medication, we actually need to really go back to first principles in terms of what, are, what is the biological plausibility for this medication for this symptom, mm -hmm. assess the pathophysiology, and I think the area of delirium pathophysiology is rapidly evolving and the role of dopamine um, in the big picture is rapidly becoming smaller and the areas of neuroinflammation, glucose metabolism um, increasingly are becoming much more important in our understanding of delirium. And so working out what it is we're targeting in the pathophysiology, how that might impact on symptoms and then designing trials that actually evaluate that really specific question and I think we have to think about delirium care in that really biologically based way mm -hmm. um, and we've asked a particular question but there are several others that need to uh, be answered to help us understand that more. Absolutely. And then we and put I agree all with of you. that evidence together and apply that with a particular clinical scenario in front yes. of us and some of those situations may be refractory or fall outside the evidence um, mm -hmm. but I think the the actual issue we have for delirium care is that there's such a void of evidence that too many clinical scenarios fall into that group and I think we have to do better from that perspective. Parsing it out, so to speak. And some people have looked at your study and said, you know, this is a very particular type of study. Most of your patients had cancer. They were within two to three weeks of death. They were not, like, imminently dying. Um, so really, is it applicable to a wider population, perhaps patients who are within uh, several days or a week of death who have even more severe delirium. What are your thoughts about that? Well, I think it comes to the, the biological plausibility. Um, what, you know, is there a biologically plausible reason for why delirium in someone who's in the last hours today to, of life would be different uh, to this group of people? Um, and my view is that probably there isn't suddenly a completely different uh, pathophysiology in question, but I think we need to do the further work to actually establish whether yes. uh, that is the case. 
And I certainly agree that non-pharmacologic interventions are best if, you, if that will get the job done. But um, we do see in people very close to the end with really frightening delirium, um, what's the best option? I agree we need more research, but you take care of patients very often, I'm sure. What do you, what do, you do in those situations? So I suppose as we've been doing this trial and I think the benefit of doing a trial is that you get to speak to a lot of clinicians who are tackling mm -hmm. this issue on a, a day-to-day -day basis, both doctors, nurses, pharmacists, the whole interdisciplinary team, this affects everybody. Um, and as we were doing the trial, I think what we really began to understand is that that sometimes it is symptom recognition rather than the word delirium is not used often enough. Um, mm -hmm. a, a full assessment of the, the etiology of delirium is often um, not put in place and the most critical thing is that communication with the family if, um, and the patient if they're able about what delirium is, demystifying what it actually is and why it's happening and providing support and um, empowering a, a group of strategies around that person um, is so often missed and I think we often call situations refractory when some of those really fundamental things haven't been put in place. So I think we challenge, we're challenging people to think about, you know, do people have in their units or in their services systematic ways to make sure that happens for every person with delirium um, and that becomes core business, not just um, now and again when people remember. I was interested to read in the accompanying commentary by Drs. Maust and Kales. They said that uh, the title of their article is Medicating Distress. Often they postulated we use these drugs to make ourselves feel better. What do you think about that? I think in some situations when people take a very narrow pattern recognition and then haven't taken time to sit down and have that conversation, um, now I think Karen Steinhauser's work from the 2000 uh, paper no, we underestimate how mental awareness and being aware how critical that is and I've had many patients say to me that, you know, that now that they understand what is causing their delirium symptoms, they really, they want the management to be focused on being mentally aware and sedation or something that may lead to some sedation is not a treatment that they would uh, consider. So. I think we have mm -hmm. to tailor it to every individual and to, it's an informed, no, essentially all our prescribing in delirium is off-label, off-license prescribing mm -hmm. and I think it's about the informed consent discussion with the, the best available evidence we have and then tailoring mm -hmm. it to that individual. Mm -hmm. I agree. Were you at all tempted to look at any antipsychotic agents that were more pharmacologically distinctive? Because haloperidol and risperidol are fairly similar. Were you tempted at all to look at an older drug such as chlorpromazine? Or I think the number one drug in the U.S. now is quetiapine, which I see prescribers using off-label very often as a sleeping agent. Yes. Um, what are your thoughts about different agents? So this trial um, arose out of a legislative and policy framework um, in the Australian context which was about improving access to medicines for palliative care patients. Um, mm -hmm. And so there was a program of consultation with the Australian clinical community around the medications that they felt um, there was difficulty accessing all the evidence that underpinned um, 
access within the current frameworks in the Australian medicine sort of legislative framework uh, were not mm -hmm. um, available. So risperidone um, was um, one of those medications that was identified um, and so we felt that because haloperidol actually is a much more commonly used medication in this scenario, um, we added the third arm. There was also the practicality of the blinding. Um, both mm -hmm. of those can be made into an oral solution. Uh, so we would have had to have several placebos if we had... Um, and we were a bit worried about the swallowing issue and so the oral solution was a partly a pragmatic uh, mm -hmm. uh, a decision as well. Um, so I think okay. it was um, some of those drivers and some of the pragmatic decisions that, and the policy framework that led us to those two agents. But I agree that you know, understanding that biological basis of the choice of agents and um, there are some questions that remain around the different um, receptor mm -hmm. blockades of some of the other agents that would be interesting. Yes, I agree. Just like uh, some patients respond better to one opioid than another, you have to wonder about the responses to individual antidopaminergic agents as well. Some people have questioned that in your trial, um, the two drug, active drug treatment arms perhaps may have been a little bit dissimilar, even if not statistically, from the placebo arm. For example, the Haldol group was a little bit older. They were using more opioid baseline, and they ended up using more midazolam. What are your thoughts on if any influence that had on the outcomes uh, or, or not? So they weren't statistically significantly different and in our mixed models when we accounted for, for those um, baseline variables um, the results didn't change. Um, in terms of the midazolam dose, the, the actual overall use was low so there was many people who didn't receive any midazolam at all and we mm -hmm. then also looked at for the groups that did receive uh, midazolam, there was no difference in the median dose that was uh, received um, across the arms. Um, so there doesn't seem to be an inequity in terms of the dose exposure, um, though mm -hmm. the amount, um, the, the percent that received uh, that dose was slightly higher in the, the haloperidol and respiridone arms. Mm -hmm. I think the challenge, um, and for anyone who's designed a trial, the ethical issues in both the palliative care population, but if you add delirium and cognitive impairment and a trial where their proxy is consenting um, after yes. much sleepless nights and discussion, you can imagine <laughs> that leaving the group um, without a rescue, um, we felt, was not um, warranted. But you could argue that um, that adds um, an, another challenge. But that was the reason we came to that decision. I'm sure getting this through Institutional Review Board was a nightmare, especially when I see you had 11 different sites. And as you mentioned, it's a fragile population and you're using psychoactive drugs. I'm sure that was a real day at the beach, getting that through. I'm curious why you only followed the... Interesting I'm sorry. We, we had to actually present it to the, the guardianship tribunals, which are the, the bodies that look at proxy decision-making for clinical care. And the interesting mm -hmm. thing was there were two lay members on both of those reviews and their overwhelming comment was that people with delirium deserve the best quality evidence to guide their care and they were very encouraging. So I think that gives us all encouragement that trying to do a studies that tackle questions in delirium should be done and that the community and our consumers are really supportive of that. 
Absolutely. I tell my students that um, when you consider how old the field of palliative care is relative to the field of internal medicine, I think just during my career, it's been astonishing to see the evolution of evidence that has been published. Don't, would you agree? Yes. But and still a lot really of work to do, tackling, granted. Tackling questions that are so important and mirror what we have to tackle in clinical practice, which I think is the exciting part. Yes, I love practical research. I'm curious why you chose to only follow these patients for three days. So I think our approach was really that delirium, if you are going to use a medication to treat delirium, we, in this group of people we want a response from it because we're treating distress and that was our primary question, that we felt that if we weren't seeing responses within a three-day period that, that from a clinical perspective would be not a really um, effective strategy for that clinical problem. Mm-hmm. Okay. And any thoughts on the cause of death? I tried to think of why it would be, and the only thing that came to my mind was prolongation of the QT interval or glucose intolerance. But I didn't think glucose intolerance, at least in my mind, would so quickly have an effect. What are your thoughts? So I think the, the challenge is that we, we have overall survival outside the study period, but we don't have any medication exposure um, data or what other clinical events happen for these people to really look at all the covariates that might be influencing mortality. So we don't know how many um, had an initial resolution of their delirium and then had a second episode. Uh, We don't know what the um, treatment choices of the clinicians after the study period were to know what their exposure to both the agents within the trial but other antipsychotics or other uh, psychoactive medications. So I think that's um, purely a hypothesis generating Um, a secondary Mm -hmm. outcome which we need to really understand a bit better. I agree. So what are the next steps for you? What's what's next on your dance card? So I think we're we're keen to try and look at um, system approaches to improving delirium care and in a more um, holistic sense. I think I'm having an ongoing conversation about delirium care Um, and I think trying to understand whether there are novel targets and agents um, that would have uh, a much better chance of actually making fundamentally major differences in outcomes for people with delirium, both in palliative care but also outside uh, delirium, um, delirium outside palliative care um, mm-hmm. is um, something that we would be really interested to see. Oh, that's great. Any final thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners about this trial or anything else in your practice and research? I think just to encourage people um, to to involve, invo- be involved in research that um, explores care for people with cognitive issues and delirium in palliative care. It may be challenging, um, but work collaboratively with people that are working in this area, but also who do delirium research outside palliative care. And I think if we mm-hmm. all put our minds to it and are passionate about why this is so critically important, um, we can really make big inroads in trying to um, understand how we can care for these people better. Oh, that would be awesome. That would be tremendous. Well, I'd like to thank Professor Ager from the University of Technology, Sydney, Australia. I think we should have our next meeting at her house. She has an adorable accent. It's just been so interesting speaking with you. 
So thank everyone. Thank, I'd like to thank everyone for listening to the Palliative Care Chat Podcast. This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and this presentation is copyright 2017, University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science and Graduate Certificates in Palliative Care, or for permission requests regarding this podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.edu forward slash palliative. Thank you.